A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know, Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. This episode is brought to you by Visit Myrtle Beach. You know what's better than getting away to a beach? Getting together at the beach. Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. They've got over 2,000 restaurants, live music playing all day and night, and endless attractions. This place was made for playing hard and beaching easy. Welcome to 60 Miles Where You Belong. The Beach, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Plan your trip at visitmyrtlebeach.com. Due to the graphic nature of this episode, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of child endangerment and pedophilia that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. The room is dark and cramped, despite the ever-sunny L.A. weather sparkling on the other side of the walls. It's full of television monitors and computer screens, all flickering their cold electric light across the pale face of Matt Drudge himself. Drudge is perched on a rickety wooden chair at the center of the clutter, his eyes tracking the various news channels around him as his fingers type through a chat room. As he likes to say... Bob Woodward had his garage. I have my chat rooms. Like Woodward, Drudge is in the game of news. A reporter, some would call him. A gossip columnist, according to others. But Drudge, pushing back a falling lock of dark hair, doesn't care about labels. He's confident that his work is valuable, whatever people call it. After all, he and his little political blog are about to post on one of the biggest stories of the decade. President Bill Clinton was having an affair with 22-year-old former White House intern Monica Lewinsky. On January 17, 1998, Matt Drudge unleashed a scandal that almost took down the President of the United States, all from his two-room apartment in L.A. No college degree, no press pass. In fact, he only had one weapon— the World Wide Web. This is The Dark Side Of, a ParCast original, a show where we will delve into the seedy underbelly of pop culture icons and historical events. We aim to expose the ugly truth behind cultural moments and public figures we hold most dear, proving that there is always more to the story than meets the eye. I'm your host, Richard. And I'm Kate. Today is the first installment in a new season of The Dark Side Of. For the past 10 weeks, we delved into the dark side of space. Now we're turning our lens to another beloved cultural touchstone, the 1990s. 
As every decade brings new challenges, a rosy tint has started to color these bygone years. Princess Diana's biker shorts are back on every teen's fashion wish list. The Chicago Bulls' six 90s championship wins have become the stuff of miniseries legend. College kids blast the Spice Girls and the Backstreet Boys at throwback-themed parties. But all this nostalgia obscures the more unpleasant bits of 1990s history. Some of the decade's most beloved industries, like Nickelodeon and pop music, were exploitative of their young stars. Corporate interests poisoned America with each burst of a fruit gusher, landing ever-increasing numbers of Americans in the hospital. And violent, tragic deaths tore the public apart, from Tupac Shakur to Columbine. Over the next 10 weeks, we'll cover these topics and more. You can find all episodes of The Dark Side Of and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream The Dark Side Of for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type The Dark Side Of in the search bar. Today, we're starting at the dawn of the decade and the public launch of one of its most defining features, the World Wide Web. Many people expected that the internet would be one of the most radically impactful tools since the invention of the wheel. And they weren't wrong. But while the web fulfilled its bright promises of a global person-to-person connection, it turns out this bond isn't always friendly or cooperative. Sometimes we're connected by shared angst, anger, and disagreement. And when those connections run to dial-ups in every home in America, they can rip the very fabric of society apart. The story of the Internet began several decades before the 90s, in 1969. That's when the U.S. Department of Defense created ARPANET, a network connecting mainframe computers at major universities and defense installations. It was a major technological breakthrough. But ARPANET didn't look exactly like what we think of when we think Internet. There was no web browser, no bar at the top of the page to type out a URL, no choice of Safari, Chrome, or Firefox. Those trappings all belong to the World Wide Web, an interface that lies on top of the basic connective tissue of the Internet, making it accessible to everyday people at home. It allows any computer to communicate with any other computer anywhere in the world. And this revolutionary technology came into the picture in the 1990s. The World Wide Web launched on August 6, 1991, thanks to one Sir Timothy Berners-Lee, the computer scientist who'd conceptualized and built it. In a short post, he laid out its purpose. The WWW project started with the philosophy that much academic information should be freely available to anyone. It aims to allow information sharing within internationally dispersed teams and the dissemination of information by support groups. Berners-Lee stood by this noble vision when he abstained from patenting his invention, releasing it free to the public in 1993. From there, the world was on a fast track to global connection, improved information access, and an entirely new space for congregating, learning, and evolving. Not a continent, but something far more vast. 
Throughout the first half of the 90s, the World Wide Web looked fairly drab. It was mostly text-based, with few images, and many people were still calling it an electronic bulletin board. But for many of the first web users, connecting with anyone in the world using nothing more than an internet connection felt magical. As one person put it in an interview with the Washington Post in 1993, there's something so spiritual about getting to know someone only through words. It's like a living novel, a drama that plays itself out 24 hours a day. You can really get lost in this thing. That all sounds pretty alluring. Enough so that internet cafes opened to capitalize on the appeal, while more and more people started getting personal computers and internet connections for their homes. Prices for dial-up modems went down, and growth multiplied even further. By December 1995, there were 16 million internet users. By December 1996, that number had more than doubled to 36 million users. By the end of the decade, 248 million people were online. Many of whom lived in America. Between 1990 and 1997, the amount of U.S. households with a computer went from 15% to 35%. By 1997, 18% of American homes were equipped with an internet connection. And by the end of the decade in 2000, that number had ballooned to 41.5%. In less than 10 years, America officially went digital. You could call it a miracle, and plenty of investors did. They saw this new space as a fascinating opportunity, calculating the value of that opportunity not in terms of the amount of academic information it could disperse, but in terms of profit. Already a bastardization of the Internet's noble aims. But still, business isn't a bad thing, per se. Beginning around 1995, investors started tossing money at so-called dot-com companies, which included everything from tech-based companies like search engines to e-commerce sites for books, clothing, and children's toys. They didn't exactly understand how profit would work for some of the companies they were investing in, but how could they? This was an entirely new world, one of promise and opportunity. The profits were sure to come, eventually. So the bubble kept growing. The valuations kept getting higher. Regular people started getting in on the action, quitting their jobs and taking up investing full-time. Others created their own dot-com businesses. By the spring of 1999, one in 12 Americans were in some stage of founding a business. But there was a problem. And it wasn't just that something created as a free public good was being rapidly monetized. There was a deeply practical issue, too. Almost none of these businesses were profitable. They were trying to use the Internet to make it big. But few businesses had figured out how to effectively harness the power of the World Wide Web to spit out cold, hard cash. Throughout the 90s, dot-com businesses were fumbling, living on nothing more than investor speculation and a dream. By 1999, the collective dot-com industry losses totaled 6.2 
billion. Just five years into the boom, and the instability of the market was starting to become dangerously apparent. As dot-com business owner and internet historian Brian McCullough put it, over the second half of 1999, it wasn't a question of whether or not a bubble existed. It was a question of how big it was and when it would pop. The answer came in 2000. A handful of companies would survive the enormous burst. Amazon, Google, Yahoo, to name a formidable few. But many more one-time investor favorites would go bankrupt, like eToys.com and Pets.com, sites that hardly ring a bell today. The effects would be painful in America and worldwide, both for hedge fund managers and for the little people their investments affected. After all, the hedge fund boys knew when to jump ship, but not the mom who poured her savings into a friend's brilliant e-commerce site. Not the guy who finally got to start a business after decades of working for the man. These average, hopeful Americans had been the most aggressive investors all along. They'd loaded up their 401ks with dot-com stocks. And they lost everything. By the end of 2002, a study by Vanguard found that 70% of 401ks had lost at least one-fifth of their value. 45% had lost more than one-fifth. The rest is a story for the following decade. But unfortunately, the dot-com bubble was far from the darkest fallout during the 90s internet boom. In fact, what's most ominous about the dot-com bubble might not be its absurd climb, nor its tragic burst. It may simply be the attitude that it showcased. Many people greeted the dawn of the information age with unbridled, reckless optimism, taking little account of the facts. They saw the connection provided by the World Wide Web as nothing but a promise, an indication they could finally start the business they'd always dreamed of, an invitation to make endless piles of money. But this impetuous, optimistic embrace of the World Wide Web during the 90s also came at a price. And it wasn't just financial. Many Americans were reckless to the point of ignoring even the darkest, most alarming dangers lurking behind their home computer screens. Reckless to the point of allowing children to roam free through what amounted to the new Wild West. Coming up, the dark underbelly of the Internet and the ways it poisoned homes across America. This episode is brought to you by Rakuten. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% cash back at hundreds of stores, including headliners, Ulta, Ray-Ban, and Canon. Rakuten is how in-the-know shoppers get the best savings. They shop the brands they love and earn cash back on top of deals during Big Give Week, May 6th to May 13th. The cash back rates are even bigger. I'll be shopping for Adidas and Fenty. You can save on everything you need for summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of Big Give Week's 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. 
R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Now, back to the story. The World Wide Web made its first appearance in 1991. By the end of the decade, the dot-com bubble was so big, it was about to burst. But venture capitalists and entrepreneurs weren't the only ones getting online. The internet was a wild west, a bit transgressive, unknown, and exciting, a world waiting to be discovered. Kids loved that. By the end of the decade in 2000, nearly half of 12 to 17-year-olds use the internet at home, and 25% of 6 to 11-year-olds were in on it too. Meanwhile, a whopping four out of every five kids had access to the net through a school computer lab. They were playing games, browsing websites like etoys.com and joining chat rooms. Hosted by popular websites like AOL, chat rooms were a ubiquitous part of the 90s internet. They were places to congregate with strangers and discuss anything and everything. Connection, after all, was a huge part of what excited people about getting online. Some parents cautioned their children about these spaces, warning that they were seedy and full of adults. But kids weren't about to miss out on the fun or the promises of a chat room. And no one craves connection and acceptance more than a young teen. As one reporter put it, as a gawky kid entering high school, chat rooms were a haven from the awkwardness of real human interaction. I'd use them to discuss punk bands like Operation Ivy with other teenagers, to play the chat room equivalent of Dungeons and Dragons, and to talk to what I very much hoped were actual girls. Very much hoped. Indeed. Because yet another demographic was taking note of the number of kids online. Pedophiles. They were rapidly realizing just how easy it was to hide behind a false identity in a chat room. To pretend to be someone you weren't. To get someone you'd never approach in real life to talk to you. To send you pictures or look at yours or to meet up with you in real life. Kenneth Lanning, a former agent with the Behavioral Science Unit of the FBI, explained, Before the Internet, these people may have been sexually drawn to children, but they kept their impulses in check. Then along comes a technology where you don't even have to leave your house and no one can see you. The temptation was now enormous. And many pedophiles failed to resist it. Amongst them, a 51-year-old Seattle man named Alan Paul Barlow. Slipping into a teenage persona via an online chat room was easy. A low-energy social relief after a long day of work at the post office. And then Barlow met her, just 14, living out in Westchester, New York far enough away that it felt like an innocent flirtation. And he could tell she liked him. Of course, she thought he was her age. 
as they chatted and then emailed for six long months, an eternity in the life of a teenager. But even when she thought Barlow was her peer, she knew their conversations weren't something her mother would like. She didn't even dare tell her friends about the things Barlow's Oscar wanted to do to her love bunny. By the time Barlow told her his real age, the child was far too invested in their secret affair to back out. She agreed to meet in person. Telling her mother that she was taking her little brother to the school playground, she went to their agreed-upon location. There, looking like any proud dad on a walk with his children, Barlow snapped a few photos of the teen and her eight-year-old sibling. Then, in a miraculous stroke of luck, the children's mother ran into the trio. She immediately took her kids home, where her daughter revealed everything. That night, Barlow was arrested at his motel. Thankfully, in this case, nothing physical happened between Barlow and his target, and eventually he was punished for his crimes. But his sexually explicit messages already constituted a gross violation of a child. And unfortunately, his victim was far from alone. By 2001, just after the close of the decade, a study by the University of New Hampshire found that one in five children who went online regularly had been solicited for sex. The internet was actively facilitating sex crimes against children. By the mid-90s, the FBI was aware of the problem and started running chatroom sting operations where agents posed as kids or teenagers. But the number of kids online just kept growing, as did the popularity of chat rooms. By 1997, AOL hosted an estimated 19,000 unique chat rooms. Its users spent more than a million hours chatting every day. The FBI could not possibly keep up. And 90s kids, like Barlow's victim, paid the price. Kids weren't the only ones at risk of stumbling on questionable internet friends. As we discussed back in our Dark Side of Dating season, anyone looking for love online was vulnerable to scammers too. Whatever your reasons or demographic, if you were sucked into the World Wide Web by its bright, shiny promises of connection with strangers, you were in danger. Of course, the culprits here are real people with criminal intent. And the internet was their tool. It gave them their power, namely the power to connect with innocent strangers. And criminals weren't the only ones who were taking advantage of that particular benefit. Many people remember the early internet fondly, thanks to another breed of online denizen, the blogger. Although, as the man who is widely recognized as the first blogger reminds us, it wasn't called blogging back in 1994. When I first started doing it, they called it a personal homepage. Then they said, I'm one of the first diarists, and now I'm one of the first web bloggers. Justin Hall started his personal homepage, links.net, while a student at Swarthmore College. At first, it served as a kind of guide to the internet, full of links to interesting web pages at a time when search engines like Google were embryonic. Gradually, it turned into an explicit online diary, 
detailing his alcoholic father's suicide and his sexual exploits, as well as his thoughts on art, writing, science, eating disorders, African-American religions, and Tai Chi. For Hall and most of the personal bloggers that followed in his footsteps, publicly documenting one's private life was a revolutionary, powerful way of connecting with the world. As Hall put it, this is my art. Today, the retro aesthetic of their pages feels charmingly nostalgic, a window into a more DIY, exciting era of the web. From the beginning, blogging was plagued by darker possibilities. Hall told the New York Times that as his blog became more popular, former girlfriends started acting less than enthusiastic about his project. They began asking him to remove their names from his site. They worried they would face professional consequences if an employer's web search turned up the blog, revealing their previous association with such a racy character. The ability of anyone, anywhere, to say whatever they wanted about whomever they wanted, all with a substantially sized audience, that was revolutionary. But it was also an opportunity for people to say things they shouldn't. Unfair things. Damaging things. The more ominous consequences of blogging became even more apparent as blogging shifted from a project predominantly focused on the personal to one focused on the public, and issues far outside the private home. No one exemplified this better than Matt Drudge. Drudge started the Drudge Report in 1995. At first, it was an email newsletter detailing Washington and Hollywood gossip. By 1997, there was a blog, too, and he was doing his own original reporting, which often involved posting headlines from traditional news sources before they published their own articles, thanks to sources within the media machine. The Drudge Report was revolutionary. For the first time, you didn't need a budget for a printer to call yourself a journalist. All you needed was a dial-up connection. Drudge's project was different from most mainstream news sources in style as well as format. It used exclamation marks and all-caps highlighting, more like a tabloid than the New York Times, even as it entered the big leagues of serious news and acquired a larger and larger audience. This looser style applied to some of Drudge's reporting ethics, too. In August 1997, he broke the news that New Yorker writer Sidney Blumenthal, who was about to begin a job as an assistant to President Bill Clinton, had abused his spouse. Drudge claimed there were court records to prove it. But Drudge didn't have the court records, nor did he cite evidence that he'd looked for them. He simply claimed he'd gotten his intel from an influential Republican. The tip turned out to be false. Blumenthal had no history of spousal abuse, and despite having his name dragged through the mud, he went ahead with his job for Clinton. But that was far from the end of the story. After the false report, Drudge was hit with censure throughout the traditional media and Washington establishment. They cautioned that this so-called blogger was a hack and a gossip monger with no journalistic ethics that the internet had given a loudspeaker to a dunce, that he was a conservative anti-Clinton zealot who had thrown the most important rule of reporting out the window, 
objectivity. Blumenthal sued Drudge for $30 million. President Clinton approved the suit. Drudge even made an appearance in the Doonesbury comic strip. The Drudge character smeared House Speaker Newt Gingrich by concocting a story that Gingrich was running a sex ring out of his press office. Drudge still had his fans. Visits to his site had reached one million a month by late 1997. But both the fans and the disgusted outcry against Drudge may have had the same root. International advertising agency Young and Rubicam featured Drudge among its eight trends for 98 and succinctly explained the paradox he presented. Think of Drudge as the symbol of a small voice roaring. As with any form of mass media, the Internet wields great power. The difference between the Internet and TV or radio is that the net allows two-way communication and gives as much potential power to a 13-year-old computer geek as to a corporate CEO or government leader. Drudge was closer to the 13-year-old computer geek than the CEO or government leader as far as the Washington establishment was concerned. He didn't have a college degree. He didn't work at one of the major papers. He didn't even follow basic journalistic principles, like fact-checking. As far as Drudge was concerned, that was just fine. After all, as he explained in a 1998 interview, democratizing the news was exactly his goal. He wanted to challenge big media's control of news editing and dissemination. And he was working alone. He didn't have time to fact-check everything. Plus, he encouraged his readers to check a wide variety of original sources for themselves, linking to both European and American news sites liberally. His readers should function as their own editors, do their own fact-checking. Still, Washington insiders were unconvinced. They saw Drudge as unreliable, untrustworthy, and yet they had to admit he'd garnered himself an audience. That was what bothered them most of all, what made him so dangerous in their eyes. The fact that people might, and did, take Drudge at his word, whatever his extracurricular reading suggestions. It terrified the establishment. Sure, the Internet's power to democratize information might be a good thing, but if there were no distinctions between good and bad information, between true and false, biased and unbiased, that wasn't good. The divisive seeds Drudge had sowed in the media industry by 1997 are still flowering today. Andrew Breitbart was Drudge's one-time assistant. But Drudge hadn't even broken his most controversial story yet, unleashing all the dark, tangled questions that would come with it. Coming up, Matt Drudge rocks the nation and brings the vast powers of digital communication into the spotlight. This episode is brought to you by Visit Myrtle Beach. You know what's better than getting away to a beach? Getting together at the beach. Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. They've got over 2,000 restaurants, live music playing all day and night, and endless attractions. This place was made for playing hard and beaching easy. Welcome to 60 Miles Where You Belong. The Beach, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Plan your trip at visitmyrtlebeach.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Now back to the story. By 1997, Matt Drudge was trending, according to ad agency Young and Rubicam. His casual, sometimes accurate digital reporting was the talk of the Capitol, forcing Washington to reckon with the ways in which the internet had democratized news, for better or for worse. But it was a few months later that he'd really earn Young and Rubicam's accolades. On a crisp January 17, 1998, Matt Drudge broke the news that President Bill Clinton had been having an affair with a White House intern, and that Newsweek was sitting on the story. This post naturally rocketed Drudge to national fame while ruining the life of Monica Lewinsky, the 24-year-old woman Drudge's post had referenced. Like Justin Hall's girlfriends before her, Lewinsky hadn't been interested in broadcasting her life story to the Internet via someone else's blog. But unlike Hall's girlfriends, Lewinsky didn't just have to face down critical potential employers. She had to face down a whole nation's worth of slut-shaming and constant, often cruel, news coverage. Her future was irrevocably changed. She's spoken on the issue many times since. Thanks to Drudge's blog, everything Lewinsky's ever done has been contextualized by the scandalous associations that come along with her name. Whatever the traditional news media thought of Drudge's reporting as a whole, they had to admit he'd gotten the story right this time. The consequences unrolled rapidly. Ultimately, they led to the president perjuring himself by claiming that he did not have sexual relations with that woman. And then, on to impeachment proceedings. Clinton, as you probably know, was ultimately acquitted and finished up his second term in the White House. But to scoop such an enormous story, one that came staggeringly close to unseating a president, was an enormous feather in Drudge's cap and for social blogging as a whole. The scandal defined the end of the 1990s, playing out almost daily on front pages across America and worldwide throughout 1998. But remarkably, it didn't turn the world against Clinton. His approval ratings actually soared over the course of the saga. That's likely because many people thought the president's private affairs weren't the public's business. They hadn't been when JFK was in the White House. Why should they be now? As far as many Democrats were concerned, this was an embarrassing but irrelevant scandal stemming from anti-Clinton sentiment amongst Republicans. The seeds of this viewpoint are evident in Drudge's initial report about the affair. It noted that Newsweek was sitting on the story when Drudge published it. That is, they had dug up the story before he did. They just weren't sure they should publish it, so they waited and lost the scoop to the internet. That hesitation points to a deeper difference between Drudge's online journalism and traditional media outlets. 
it wasn't just a question of qualifications or even fact-checking. On a base level, traditional news outlets are guided by a historically defined system of ethics about what constitutes news. These ethics aren't just about what could be published simply because it's true, but about what should be published. There's a moralizing element there, akin to something like the Electoral College, a safeguard of educated power brokers between the masses and the truth. But in the eyes of traditional journalism, an editorial lens is crucial because truth is always an ambiguous term. And facts, like statistics, can easily be nudged to lie. They would say that editorial presentation may indeed mean as much as facts themselves. Thanks to these sorts of ideas, the first White House press pass given to a blogger wouldn't happen until 2005. But for critics of the traditional media establishment, Drudge's code had more appeal than those tricky negotiations between facts, manipulation, and power. All he was interested in was the truth. No angle, no questioning whether facts should be kept private or not. And that's what the information age has made people hungry for. As Drudge himself explained, there is a demand for unedited information. It's very important that everyone can now see the Associated Press and United Press International online. The average Joe can get the full picture, see what newspaper and broadcast editors are leaving out. That's going to change everything because we don't have to wait for Dan Rather to get his makeup on and read to us. As we've spiraled further into the information age, Questions about what constitutes fake news have only gotten more destructive. But it's indisputable that the quippy soundbite culture the Drudge Report crafted has taken over the net and the airwaves. Patience for long-form editorialized news has gone down, and as snippets of so-called fact ricochet through digital space, it's gotten ever more difficult to escape from echo chambers of partisan thought or the insidious influence of downright lies. Even if you're lucky enough to learn that the horrifying news snippet you read earlier was in fact false, the anger can linger on objectless. Then that anger looks for a target, someone to blame, and more often than not, it lands on a political other. It's not an exaggeration to say the trend has torn America apart. And those seeds were all planted back in the 90s at the dawn of the World Wide Web. Some commentators were aware of the dark powers of this unfamiliar beast as it lurched and then sprinted into existence. Some investors pulled out of the dot-com bubble before the crash. Some parents set time limits on their kids' screen time or made them browse the web in living rooms where they could supervise the screen. Plenty of people cautioned that Drudge's style of journalism was a bastardized version of truth-telling and a dangerous one at that. But America and the whole world ran headlong into the arms of the Internet anyway, putting few safeguards in place as they went. And the World Wide Web radically reformulated society in the process. Not always for the better. But the Internet, as we've mentioned, is still just a tool. 
not a crime. It's not inherently bad. It's what people do with it that makes it so dangerous. And over the course of the 90s, people did plenty with it. We'll see it pop up as a crucial element in many of the dark stories to come this season. It'll rarely take center stage, but often it'll be the linchpin that holds a whole lot of the 90s darkness together. Carrying media from questionable sources, selling products with problematic ethics, tracking shady financial transactions. And sometimes the dark currents zinging through the 90s internet snapped right out into the real world, poisoning the decade with tragic deaths, harrowing national disasters, and real-life traumas. Nostalgia who? We'll cover all of that and more this season on The Dark Side Of. Thanks for listening to The Dark Side Of. Next week, we're delving into Nickelodeon. On the surface, a kid's entertainment empire that brought laughs and joy to television and, yes, computer screens around America. But behind the globs of slime and laughter lay plenty of dark secrets, like mistreatment of child actors and sexual assault accusations. You can find more episodes of The Dark Side Of for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. Just open the app and type The Dark Side Of in the search bar. We'll see you next time. The Dark Side Of was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of The Dark Side Of was written by Nora Battelle, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Richard Rossner and Kate Leonard. <laughs>